Through the lens of loving local and seeing global, we obsessively search for people whose stories need to be told and how OKC played a supporting role. Hosted by Katherine Buxton and Amy Cobes, welcome to Action City. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Emmy. From our your Action City girls, happy Thanksgiving. To all of our listeners. Yes. I know that some people are probably hiding from their family and taking this hour to themselves and good for you. Um, I'm sure some of you are sick of asking your kids to help set the table. I'm sure some of you are sick of your parents asking you to help set the table. So either way, we're hope we can... Have a little little moment to yourself, a little self-care on Thanksgiving. But so instead of doing our normal pit and peaks, Catherine and I have decided to kind of do our favorite Thanksgiving traditions and our least favorite. And I'm going to start with my least favorite because I like to end on a positive. But and bear with me. But my least favorite Thanksgiving tradition is the eating at 2 p.m. Hear me out. I hate it because... The time of day is awkward. It's not lunch. It's too early for dinner. You're hungry by 8 p.m., right? And also, I like to have my Thanksgiving dinner. I like to, it to be candlelit and warm and cozy. I like to have a big glass of red wine or maybe four. And you can't really do that at 2 p.m. And also, I don't want to be rushed to eat to go watch the freaking Cowboys game kickoff. Like, no, I could care less about that. Exactly. It's like, I just, the 2 p.m. is so awkward. I do, I do not like it. Like, I'm all for a 5 p.m., like an early dinner is great, but no, none of this late lunch, awkward lunchtime. I can't deal with it. So that's my least favorite, but my favorite is pumpkin pie, hands down. I know some people don't like pumpkin pie. It is my ultimate, ultimate, ultimate favorite. My mom always saves me a piece for breakfast the next morning and it's so good. And it just like, it makes, it's my Thanksgiving is pumpkin pie. So is there a special recipe of, does your mom have to make it? Is it more of a kind of a chiffon fluffy pumpkin pie or is it a thick dense pumpkin pie? See, Catherine, the difference between the two of us about food (laughs) is I just, I like it any way it comes. Any way it comes. And I'm thinking about like the perfect pumpkin pie. What bite am I going to end on? No. What's it going to feel like? I mean, I have a problem. It's, no, I it's, love I love this that you're. I need to think about things in a different way, but no, it, the no, you're just happy with any pumpkin pie. With any, honestly, grocery store to like the freaking two hundred dollar one, I do not care. I just it needs to be there, and I need to have it for breakfast the next morning, preferably with whipped cream. But yeah, I mean, I think my favorite pies are from Ingrid's. If I had to choose yes. a local spot, I do love Pie Junkie, but they were already sold out this year. Oh no, you have to be on it. One year, I got the pie from Pie Junkie, one time, and I can I'm never on it quickly enough. And I think actually that year, Angela ordered it for me because she was already on and knew what to do. Yeah, I mean Ingrid's does do. Theirs are beautiful. Um, I've had them from I believe Lob I get before, and they were really good. But yeah, so pumpkin pie. What are yours? Gosh, I love that. Well, okay, so. I have to say, it's really hard for me to think about my least favorite tradition. But when you're talking about the time of day, maybe my least favorite thing about Thanksgiving is also my least favorite thing about all my family get-togethers is that we may say we're going to eat Thanksgiving at two. This is if my parents are cooking. If I'm going to my parents' house, we give a two o'clock start time and we may sit for dinner at 6 p.m. No. It's the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen. It is 
it is every family member, every friend knows that whenever you say the start time is going to be, you add three to four hours after that and you will start. If dinner is supposed to start at six, you will actually sit at 10. So most people know to actually eat a meal before they come. Wait, so is there like a cocktail hour or Well, yes, there's Yes, there's a cocktail hour and hors d'oeuvres, and that lasts for a long time. But what's really happening is the cooking of the meal starts when the guests arrive, no. not in advance. Oh so God. I will say the meal is always delicious. The time at the table is always um, its anticipation. It lives up to its anticipation. We always love being at the table, but there's just no attention to time and what that means. So it's very European. It's very family. European. My parents were probably meant to be in Europe as opposed to here. So anybody that you talk to that has been to dinner at my parents' house will tell you this is the major problem. And you will usually end up in the kitchen cooking something. So if you're a guest at my parents' house, just be prepared to chop or stir or clean. So that's probably my least favorite thing. But my most favorite tradition started, I don't know how many years ago. I mean, I'm 47. Oh my God, I said that out loud. So 25 years ago, we started having a Thanksgiving morning soccer game in Kite Park. And we called it the Turkey Bowl. And it was with my friend Lee Sullivan, or now it's Lee Murphy, but with Lee's family and our family. And we said, we're going to, I think we must have been in college or a little bit after college. Let's go have a soccer game in the park. And it was back when none of us had kids. None of us was married. We we could still play soccer. We were agile enough to do that. And we invited some other families. And so let's say the first year there were eight families and we all came and there's a little gazebo in Kite Park. Everyone brought, you know, from bagels to donuts, to fruit, to, you know, mimosas. And we had a, a recent addition to the list brings the best Bloody Marys you've ever tasted. But my mom and Lee's mom would bring out the Thanksgiving decorations and they put out a table and it's got a Thanksgiving tablecloth. And these they bring up these little Thanksgiving sort of turkey figurine things that I think stay in a box all year long and they just come out for this one day. And so we have the turkey bowl. And over the years, we've done fancy invitations. We've done text messages. We've done no invitation and people still show up. And you show up at nine. Sometimes it's freezing cold and you are literally bundled. And sometimes it's nice and you have on a t-shirt. And eventually when we started having kids, we realized that Two-year-olds can't really play soccer yet. So we switched it to kickball. Nice. And so now we have a kickball game and it is the perfect way to start Thanksgiving. And I'm the past last year, we I went out of town for Thanksgiving and so I missed it. And I really felt like there was something missing about my Thanksgiving. And now my in-laws come when they're in town and we we love it. It's the it's the perfect start to the day. Now it does push dinner back even more. So that is one minor problem, but the tradition of the Turkey bowl is, is one that I hope that my kids keep going for years to come. So if you want to come to Kai park on Thanksgiving morning, we might show up, honestly, we might be there. I mean, we're, you know, we're up at 7am with our, Oh yeah, you'll be ready to go. Now as, as my kids have gotten older, it's harder and harder to get there. (laughs) by nine. And if you're at Groovy's the night before, yeah, you may be, or at Edna's or wherever you might be the night before when you, you know, come back from, from, you know, living in whatever Dallas and you're home for the weekend and or home for th- Wednesday night. So sometimes it's hard to get there, but by nine, but I know that you can do it. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. How fun. And that's so much better than a turkey trot. 
Oh, way better than a turkey, way less exercise. Now, we do have one family that's been coming since the beginning. They go and do the turkey trot first, and they usually come with their numbers, you know, attached to their chest, and they're ready to go now. I mean, for the that's just game. overachieving. That's a, this is a family of overachievers. I love them, but yes, this is what they, oh my gosh, what they do. But now you can have as many mimosas as you want and eat as many donuts as you want, and you're set, set for Thanksgiving. I love it. I love it. That's so, amazing. I'm really looking forward to the day. I'm, I love being with my friends and family, and I know that you do too. And I know this year is going to be a little bit different. We may not be able to have quite as many people together on the actual Thanksgiving day, but I think it's still an opportunity to be thankful for what we have. Absolutely. Yes. We always go around the table and say what we're thankful for. I we think do too. I was going to say, does everybody do that? I know. I guess everybody does that. My kids, they, we get to them and they're like, whatever, mom, I don't want, you know, I don't want to say what I mean, but they usually end up saying something really I was gonna say, and profound. They, yeah. They don't know that there's, you know. Yeah. And then they say something sweet and you cry. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. I know we are ready to get to our conversation with Jennifer Welch. Um, so for all of you reality star junkies out there, I am not one, but most of my friends are. Emmy is. <laughs> this is the episode for you. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing Jennifer Welch. She's the founder and owner of Jennifer Welch Designs, which is a residential and commercial interior design firm with projects all over the country, Palm Springs, Nashville, New Hampshire, Richmond, and of course, right here in Oklahoma City. She co-starred in Oklahoma City's, what I think, first nationally syndicated reality show called Sweet Home Oklahoma, which I'm sure a lot of you watched. And then it spun off into a show about her design firm called Sweet Home. They both were on Bravo. We're so excited to have her here. Welcome to Action City, Jennifer. Hi, this is Catherine, one of the hosts of Action City. I have two loves, fashion and food. So far, I've only figured out how to make one of them a career. Owning Greta Sloan, Oklahoma City's premier fashion destination, has been the highlight of my 20-plus years in the industry. It's a place where people and creativity come together. My team and I do the hard work of curating designers from all over the world and then narrowing down the best of their creations to make the shopping experience one of discovery and fun. We want our clients to eye their treasures from Greta Sloan as the favorite pieces in their closets and the ones that bring them the most joy to wear. We'll see you at the shop in Nicholsville's Plaza off 63rd and Western or Check us out on Instagram at Greta Sloan, G-R-E-T-T-A-S-L-O-A-N-E. Jennifer, we're so excited to have you here. Thank Thank you for joining us. I know it takes a lot of effort to get out and about, especially these days. So we're so happy to have you. We want to start at the beginning. Tell us about growing up. Were you born in Dallas? You live in Dallas for a little bit and then you moved here. Why did you move here? We're dying to know the backstory. Okay, so I was born in Dallas. My parents are both Texans. My grandparents, the whole family was in Texas. And um, around second grade, my dad bought a business on Southwest 119th in between Penn and May. And it's called Golf Acres. And if you remember back in the 80s, how putt-putt golf courses and um, driving ranges and go-kart, all of that stuff was like a really big thing. So in Dallas, my father had video arcades. He owned a ton of arcades, which is total um, child of the 1980s, a ton of putt-putt courses. And this came for sale in Oklahoma City, my brother and sister are like eight and nine years older than I am. And my dad's like, 
we're moving to Oklahoma. And if you were born <laughs> in Texas, it is a cult-like worship of the state. My husband's from Texas and people ask me all the time how I got him to move to Oklahoma. Like, it, you know, it's, yeah, being like born in, in their right mind. Exactly. Texas. Who in their right mind would ever leave Texas? It's a, it's a, even at the age of seven or eight years old, I knew, I felt this leveling blow that we were moving to Oklahoma because the property that my dad bought had a house on it. So, you know, the shop, the house was above the shop. And um, so I can't imagine my older brother and sister, they were in high school. Oh my gosh. You were, yeah. You kill your dad. <laughs> right. you were, you were. So we moved to, um, and it's, it was on the South side of Oklahoma city, which is suburban Oklahoma city, you know, uh, cookie cutter style houses with the brick gated entrances. And we moved to Oklahoma City and it took some time, you know, probably like two or three years, but by far now I feel far more Oklahoman than I do Texan. Um and and I mean we're really splitting hairs. The lifestyle in Texas and Oklahoma, the mindset is about the same. It's the same kind of people. I agree. You know, it's mm-hmm. this it's the same part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um Texans would probably take offense to my saying yeah. that. <laughs> I'll let you know how my in-laws feel when they right, hear that. Right. I, I think Oklahomans are, uh, you know, uh, kind of like Texans without the ego. Oh, it's uh, a good way to say it, actually. Yeah, I, I agree. We, I mean, yeah, the pridefulness is probably a little bit elevated there, over the top. Texas. <laughs> we have and now I love the, Texas, but no, we, we do. Love it. Well, we, this is now the third time we've referenced say, Texas on this show, especially Dallas. We. We're trying not to bash Dallas. We were joking with Brian uh, Bogart, who was on our previous episodes, and we're like, "Sorry, but we just took a giant dump on Dallas during." (laughs) We didn't mean to trash. I know, and all my girlfriends here in Dallas, they the first episode with Andrew, we kind of touched on the fact that we felt like Dallas people weren't as loyal, and then with Brian, we did it the same but worse. So now I'm like, sorry, friends, we really do love. We love Texas. We love Texas. Texas. A lot of personality in Texas. Only I have noticed that people in Oklahoma or in Oklahoma, I feel like don't wear cowboy boots and cowboy hats as much as they do in Texas. Right. There, there's not that same obsession with those two pieces of clothing, which is, you know, one difference. Wait, so going back, so you were living at the mini golf. Yes. Wait, is as a seven-year-old, was that kind of the dream though? It was incredible. I'm sure that was so So, fun. you know, it had a it had a a pitch and putt course, um, batting cages, go-karts, a huge giant arcade, a driving range, and our house was two putt-putt courses, and our house was in the back of the property. And so I I had to work. My father is of the generation. I was seven or eight years old and I'm running the, you know, I'm making snow cones and selling M&Ms and the whole nine. But, you know, at kids at school, I could be like, hey, I have free passes for putt-putt. You nice. know, because that it's was kind of the way to make friends. That was right. kind of the place the, to go. Do you think that that value of hard work, like you was instilled in you there and then you've brought it kind of to your career now? Yes. I think, you know, my parents... Uh, are such hard workers. My father is I'm for sure he's retired now, but he was for sure a workaholic and valued hard work. And I, I mean, it was just in my DNA. Like if you want something, you have to work for it. Don't ask anybody for it. Go out and get it yourself. You know, it's my, my father was very successful. He ended up 
his career ended up kind of evolving from that into real estate development and then selling very high-end racing pigeons. And that's another story for another day. What is a racing pigeon? So um, it's actually all over the news right now because the world record racing pigeon was just bought on auction in Belgium for, um, I think, 1.9 million euros for one bird. Wait, a pigeon was bought for 1.9 million euros. Correct. There's obviously money in racing pigeons. Yes. A lot of money, it sounds like, if you can. Yes. So this was a hobby that that my father had his whole life since he was seven years old. And um, the golf course, Golf Acres, that we owned, my dad had always envisioned developing that scraping the golf course and selling it off into lots, which he did. And then Penn Square Bank folded in the 80s. And so what we thought was going to be this quick turnaround and very profitable, you know, turned into this nightmare scenario as, you know, oil completely cratered, the entire Oklahoma market cratered. And so he knew how much he had paid for pigeons for his hobby. And so you know, he did what he knew. And so then he ends up turning his hobby into his profession. And for many, many years, many decades, sold racing pigeons for a lot of money all over the world, you know, to China, to the Middle East. Um, And the hub of this is in Belgium and Holland. That is the hub. If you live in Belgium or you live in Holland, I just said racing pigeons to you and you reacted like, what, what? If you say this in Belgium or Holland, everybody knows about it. That is so Everybody cool. knows exactly what it is. And so he went to Belgium and Holland for many years. And so my dad has always had that. He's never been a victim. It's always pick yourself up by the bootstraps. And so the market crashed, but by God, he was not going to let our family crash. And so he went out and worked and worked and whatever he, he's kind of one of those guys, whatever he touches, his tenacity is such that he's going to be successful with it. Um, and I think I kind of got that gene from him, which I'm so grateful for because financial independence is something every woman on the planet should strive for having, I think. Yeah. Um, it is true freedom, you know. Um, but the racing pigeon business was down on the south side of Oklahoma. Um, and now my brother runs it. And so it's still in the family. Mm-hmm. It still exists. Can you go to a racing pigeon event? <laughs> Or is it merely the breeding and the selling of the pigeons? Okay, so if we wanted to see this, where would we go? Okay, so what it is, is if, Catherine, if you had your own pigeon loft and you had your own pigeons, after they are born, you can let them out to fly and they home, homing pigeons. Where they were born. Correct. So if you had pigeons and Emmy, you had pigeons, and I don't know how far apart you live from one another, but if we drove your pigeons to... Brownsville, Texas, to the very tip of Texas and let them go. Those birds are going to fly back. Your birds will fly back to your home and your birds will fly back to your home. Stop. Dead serious. Whoa. Okay. So they have, they have these tracking devices on their feet. Back in the day when I was a little girl, they were like these little rubber band type things. And my dad, you know, everybody had to be quiet and the birds were coming in and it was just this big thing. And you had to race in and pull the band off and then stick it in a clock and turn it and that clock the time. But now I was just at my dad's house the other day. Now he's moved to Edmond and the birds can just kind of trot over and it and it scans them in. Stop. Yeah. Wow. So in Holland, they go and drop the birds far away and then they see how far or how quickly they come back. Yes. So, so if, if, 
let's say that we the Brownville, Brownsville, Texas scenario. So if you lived in Norman, Catherine, and you lived in Edmond, but you got your bird maybe two minutes after she did, your bird probably won because your bird has to go further. So they handicap the speed and the distance and... Oh my goodness! This is fascinating. I feel. This I know. Be, I feel bad that we're spending so own much time show. talking about I mean, this. I, but it is literally there the is, coolest. There thing. is actually in Oklahoma a racing pigeon hall of fame. That you know how there's like the cowboy hall of fame oh, and all yes. that. There is the racing pigeon hall of fame that my father Rick Martis founded. Whoa! Yeah. And so, how long does a pigeon live for? Okay. Now, like the pigeons that you see in the streets, I don't know their life expectancy, but like the birds. Yeah, the, not rate, very the long. nice, though. I want to know how long that 1.8 millimeter yeah, so I think it's live? around 10 to 15 years. Okay. I mean, these birds are vaccinated, they're very well cared for. Um, you know, my dad had a full time veterinarian, you know, that. Uh, that was, you know, constantly in consultation with him, but it was actually one of his best friends. And so these birds are like, if you think you can liken pigeon racing to horse racing, Mm. like the people that do this, consider these birds thoroughbreds and and they consider it a sport and they're They're very for this. This Yes. And they're very, very serious about it. Okay. Well, I have so many more questions, but we can, (laughs) this is so interesting. Well, so when you, Graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. You went to Moore High School? Westmore. Westmore High School. Uh-huh. And then to OU? Then to OU. Mm-hmm. Did you, when you went to OU, was it, it's not very far from Moore, obviously. Not at all. Did you go back home on the weekends or did you go to Rarely. Norman? You said, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was like, like, peace out. But once I hit Norman, I mean, I think I came back like it would, I might as well have been like at NYU. Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's the way you should do it. I, yes. I think that's how college is meant yes. to be lived. I was never, you know, I, I love my parents more than anything on the planet, but I've they raised us to be independent. I've never been a be that had to go home and have my parents do my laundry. And, you know, we were raised to be independent people. And so the thought of like going home each weekend, I think they would have thought that was weird. And I think I for sure would have thought it was weird. Did you work in college? Yes, I waited tables at Chili's. Nice. On, mm-hmm. I mean, I pretty much had a job consistently since probably third grade, starting at Golf Acres Golf Course till now. Yeah. <laughs> so, in the, yeah. so would you work when you came up from school or would you work in the summers? No, I worked while going to school. I mean, when you were growing up from third grade on, what was oh, the, so okay. my children need a job is why I'm asking. I know, I, mine do they, too. They need something. I've really broken this cycle of in, in a, raising in the worst way children. possible uh-huh so i would i would work at the golf course and then you know my father it was demanded that you know we had to work i remember mowing the yard on his riding lawnmower we lived on like five or ten acres i had to feed the pigeons scrape pigeon i'm sorry for That's the language right. but go for it I, you know there's just yeah. there was there were, and then I think when I turned 16, I got a mall. Do you remember the store, the limited two T O S? Yes. Uh, yeah. I limited got, two was, was life. Was big, that was big. I time. got a job there. Okay. Okay. Loved it. You know, dressing up the little girls. And I felt like I was so big. I was 16. Cause you drove to your job. Oh, you, did right. you have a blow up chair? 
What's a blow up? Oh, at Lemonade too, they sold these like kind of they were plastic blow up chairs that you could have in your room. It was like an armchair, but you blew it up. Oh, that was maybe oh, after that was our time after our time. Yeah. Oh gosh, that was we're that was way the older thing. than that. And their silky pajamas were the two things you had to have from Lemonade too. But anyways, <laughs> rest its soul. <laughs> I know. R.I.P. So and then worked all through college. Mm-hmm. What did you get your degree in? Um, history. And. Did anyone say to you, what are you going to do with that degree when you graduate? Did your, or did they just say? I mean, no, I mean, I think that, you know, degrees are so benign. It doesn't matter. Unless you're getting some technical degree. It really. Right. I think it's just such, it's such a benign uh, thing. But I, you know, I, I remember probably in college, I started hanging out with a lot of gay people. There were some gay guys that waited tables with me at Chili's and they would say, let's go, you know, let's go to the city, which is Oklahoma City. That's what we'd say in Norman. Let's go to the city and we'd go to Angles. And I mean, I just thought, man, these guys are the best. This is the best thing ever to go out with these gay guys who are so hot, who are so cute. All they do is tell you how great you are and how beautiful you are. And you can go dance your ass off all night and not get hit on and have the best time ever. And I think my mother is a very fashionable person and she was always into decorating our homes. And I always, you know, I was with my mother a lot. We didn't have cell phones. So you spend a lot more time with your parents in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> you just did. It's, it's and harder so, to make plans outside. The she house. was always very into these types of things. And then I remember my, you know, my gay friends were always into doing their apartments and it was just kind of this evolution, something that started in my childhood that then I would give the gay community a lot of credit for kind of honing that, you know, when it looks it. good, it looks good. And yeah. we need to, we as people need to make, you know, put our thumbprint on things and make it look as good as possible. And so, you know, I, I, my mother's love for the aesthetic part of life, fashion, she's, you know, she's from that generation that she's going to have on high heels when she walks out to her car every day. She's dolled every single day. I appreciate that so much. My grandmother was like that. And I was always impressed by how how much care she took of herself. I mean, it was really, I love that. I love that. I don't, it didn't trickle down to me, but. So is that what you spent your Chili's money on was fashion or, or furniture or aesthetic things or were you saving or? No, I mean, that was like, if you were raised by Rick Martis, that's my dad. Could he have paid for your rent and your car and your gas and your books? Could he? Yeah, he could afford to do that. Would he? No. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So when did the design bug hit? So I started working for a girl in Oklahoma City um, and she was an interior designer. And I knew that, you know, that is, this is what I'm going to do. And and I knew that I had, uh, it, for creative people, you have something in you that it's very hard to articulate that it's instinctual, like instinctually, I think, okay, these two things look good together. And I can't really describe when I was on the show, everybody, the producer would always say, why did you pick that? I'm like, I don't know why I picked it. I just thought it would look good, but it's an instinctual thing. And I knew I kind of had that in me, but having some natural creativity and then being an interior designer are two completely different things. You really have to, it's, I think with anything, it's a practice. You know, you have to practice playing the piano. You have to practice law to become a better lawyer. You have to practice 
being a designer to become a better designer. And so I'm 46 now. So I've been doing this, you know, almost 25 years. So I've been cracking at it a long time. I've made just some horrible mistakes. Horrible mistakes. I remember watching the show and you were like, Yeah, I painted every room of the house a different color. And I was like, Disaster. I did that in my, I was in my say, house before this house. Every it looked like an ice cream parlor. Absolute it, mm-hmm. disaster. Disaster. And so going back, if I were to have to walk through some of the projects I did in my 20s, not all of them, but some of them where I thought, you know, I've got this nailed it. You know, just the hubris of being in your 20s where you think that you, you know, you've got the world by the tail and the narcissism that comes with that age. I mean, I would die if I walked into some of those projects right now. I mean, I would absolutely die because I made a lot of terrible mistakes. But I think that for a creative person, you have to, in order to grow, you have to be able to say, dang it, I screwed that up. I mean, even now, you know, we'll be at a really big install and a piece of furniture will go in and I'm like, that's wrong. Get it out. I'm going to order them something else. Get it out of here. Rarely happens now because, you know, I've really tried to learn from my mistakes, but it does. I (laughs) Did he just toot? I think he's like scratching. My dog's here. Everybody tubby. (laughs) She just had this look on his face. (laughs) Four-legged friend. I wish we're Tubby so could ex- talk. I wish we could interview Tubby. I know. I know. I know. I know. Spice. Well, we're just so happy we have a dog in the studio. I mean, it really is special. <laughs> it really so. makes, puts everybody at ease. Do you, um, do you wish that you would have gone to school for interior design? Do you think that would have helped make fewer mistakes in your 20s? Do you think that helps anybody in their career having studied it in college? Or do you think... I'm, I think that... Anybody who wants to be an interior designer that wants to go that route should definitely do that. When I was in my, at at that age, I wasn't disciplined enough. It is a really rigorous program. Yes. And I did not, although it sounds like I was disciplined that I'm working and doing all this stuff, I partied. I had, there was a lot of fun to be had. Yes. I was at the gay bars, at drag shows. I was at Campus Corner. I mean, I... I was catching the world on fire too. So I didn't have the discipline, I don't think, at that age to do that. I will tell you that I have seen a lot of people that went that route and they are degreed interior designers and there's just no creativity there. And it's it's always shocking to me. Sometimes when I see it, I'm like, wow. Like it seems too formulaic to you? Yeah. I mean, it's like everything is just so technically, you know, accurate that it's that it's just really the space becomes very antiseptic but that's not all i mean that's not all um i think the best the best way to get good at anything is practice like real live on the job training so how long did you work for that woman before you went on your own I think it's probably about four or five years. Oh, wow. So fairly quick. I mean, so you were owning your own business, what, at 26, 27? That's incredible. And did you how quickly did you get your first employee or how long were you on your own? And, um, oh gosh, who was the first employee? You know, it's so weird when you try to think about your life before kids and draw some, <laughs> some fact and you can't accept everything we have. My kids are only, or my oldest is only two and a half and I still struggle. So. I mean, it, um, I, I would say maybe three or four years or so. And then maybe I had part-time help and then, part-time help 
you know, eventually then led to full-time help. And then now I have more, you know, I have salaried employees that are degreed interior designers that are gorgeous office, creative and they, you know, that are great and incredibly helpful and they're millennials. So they're like super techie and they can do all the that I can't do online and they just whip it up into computers and they do these fabulous presentations. So it's, that's, it's fabulous having tech people, people that are techie around you. Cause I am not techie at all. That's why um, we have Richard. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> Our producer we Richard. We thought about doing it ourselves very briefly. And then we found Richard. And I'm a millennial. So I feel kind of, I've let down my generation you have, really. by um, not, um, by not buying the podcast equipment and trying to edit it myself, but that's okay. <laughs> Do you, I've seen you manage people sort of on the periphery and and watched you interact with your employees. And I've always been fascinated by how good you are at it and how you are strong and you have boundaries and you give great direction. But at the same time, you have this sense of understanding and softness that makes you a great boss. Do you think you came out that way or did the years of sort of having part-time employees and learning what to do and what not to do helped you get to that? spot. I think that's one of the reasons why you've been successful as I you, you're so great at managing people. You know, I think that I think that probably having worked for so long and my dad was the toughest boss that doesn't really care about your feelings when it comes to work. Yeah, you I've know, had those. It is I've it is plenty of those. it is do it and do it now. Or, you know, there are consequences. And um, I I mean, there's probably some previous employees of mine where they've just where they've just made some mistakes where I'm like, you know, like I had, a, uh, <laughs> I had an employee once that asked me, um, um, Sunday is my birthday. So Monday, I'm going to be hungover. So can I come in at noon on Monday? <laughs> and my response to stuff like this is, okay. Remember all the people that told you there's no such thing as a stupid question. They were wrong because that is a stupid question. It truly is. I mean, there are so many stupid questions out there. And there is this, you know, culture now where it's like there's no such thing as a stupid question. And so I mean, I'm pretty hard on people about stuff like that, but if I see the girls I have right now, they consistently show up. They work their ass off for me, but I want it to be fun. I want them to like their job because I want long-term sustained employees and not, you know, rapid turnover. Um, But I don't, I mean, I don't know where, I mean, that's a great question, but I don't know. I tried, I mean, sometimes I think I, if I feel myself kind of losing it, I'm like, okay, girls, I'm sorry. Because every day is a new day. And I spend so much time with these people because we work so much. I really spend more time with the girls that work for me than I do the kids. Because after school, the kids have activities and things that basketball practice. And Dylan's always with his girlfriend and <laughs> doesn't want to be over. with me you anymore. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. So do you think that, yeah, I was going to ask, like comparing yourself as a mom to a boss, like what are the big differences there? I'm probably a lot more fun as a mom, but I don't know. I mean, I think the girls that work for me might say I'm fun. I mean, I like to laugh. I think it's, you know, I like to cut jokes. Um, But the boys are, you know, they're definitely independent. There's no titty babying on, on my part, you know, towards them. Uh, 
they're not as independent as I was at their age. And that's on me, not on them. You know, that's my, that's my doing. So, so it's really Josh's fault that they're, that they aren't totally independent. Let's blame it on him. A hundred percent. here uh, to defend there, himself. There is an ongoing just rule in our house that anything that goes wrong is Josh's fault. <laughs> like if that's I'm like, same rule in our house for sure. If I can't find my purse because I've hidden it from myself, I mean, I'm like, Josh, where did you put my purse? I mean, <laughs> everything is Josh's fault. Everything. It's a good thing he has such a good sense of humor. He does. He doesn't take it too seriously, I'm sure. He does. I love that so much. I mean, it's true. Yeah, it's always their fault. And the yeah, whoever the male in your house is, it's totally for sure. So I, I want to talk about Josh a little bit just because I really admire that you've kind of created this modern family. I think that it's really important to show people that you do not have to have a traditional marriage and you can still have love and support and you know, you have this beautiful family. Um, so when when did you guys get married? So <laughs> everything about was it love at first sight? No. <laughs> It was for him towards me, of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yes. Yes. Of course. How could not have been. But um, me towards him, no, absolutely not. It was not. I would just, I mean, he was drunk and slobbery and overweight. That sounds like Jim. That sounds like my husband. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> not love at first not, sight. I was going to say that about Jim. He's grown since then. He's Jeff grown. a little bit too. But it, um, I'm a very progressive person politically and um, just whatever the stereotype is that people think they are and, you know, fly over states as we are. Um, I'm not that with my political beliefs, with my religious beliefs, um, really, really, really open-minded. So that really narrows the field for me when picking yes. a partner, especially in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. And uh, Josh is really progressive. And um, we, all of the things that are important that sustain a relationship, we saw eye to eye on. So Andy's charming as hell. So I mean, he finally beat me down, beat me down, beat me down. And I fell in love with him. And um, we had Dylan first. Okay. Then we got engaged. Then we went on a honeymoon. <laughs> Did Dylan come with you on the honeymoon? No. Nice. Then we got married. So we had the honeymoon. And then the, then and the, then the marriage. marriage. Mm-hmm. And then um, Josh has really, really struggled with addiction. And I think so many people do. And um, it is getting better where people can be open about it, but it is a disease just like cancer and um, people relapse and like cancer, you'd be called, you know, uh, you know, the cancer's back and that can happen. And so his struggle with his addiction really, it, it is so painful to love somebody that's addicted to drugs or alcohol. It hurts. It just, it hurts every part of your soul. And um, my kids were young, really young, and it was just really, really painful. And I was pissed off, really mad about it. And it took a long time for me to understand that Josh was a victim too, that nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to be a drug addict. I'm going to be addicted to opiates. I'm going to hurt my kids. I'm going to hurt my wife. I'm going to, you know, piss all over my legal career. Nobody does that. Right. And um, so, at, you know, there was, and, and there were a lot of years that we put together that were really joyous. 
And then Josh would relapse again. And then it was just utter hell. And anybody listening who has loved somebody that's been addicted to alcohol or drugs is probably picking up exactly what I'm putting down. Because it's a language that um, if you've been affected by it, the person, the, the instances and the pain, it's it's all the same. It is just a really painful process. But um, at one point, I think it was 2013 or 14, I was like, look, bro, you got to get sober or I'm divorcing you. No. You know, addicts are just 10 foot tall and bulletproof, just nightmares to deal with. No. And I was just like, okay, I'm divorcing you. So I divorced him. Good thing my best friend pumps Angie Olson. I was like, (laughs) who used to practice law with Josh? I'm like, do these papers, and so I divorced him. But I divorced him to save him. Yeah, you know he had to have consequences. He had to hit a bottom, and so he got sober, and we got back together. And people ask all the time, like, are y'all going to get remarried? And I'm like, I mean. That's really the point. He's yeah. he's 51. I'm 46. Like, I mean, what? And I mean, I don't know. It's just like the whole idea when you're younger about you're getting married. You know, all of us know you do all this. And you get married and then you have this moment and then you have kids. And it's like, really? This like, is what I was dreaming about my whole life. <laughs> and mind you, there's a lot of joy peppered in that. But we bring this muck and this brokenness that all of us have to some degree from our own childhoods to adulthood and that stuff gets rectified in a marriage you know it comes up it boils up and um ours boiled up spectacularly (laughs) and but we're together now and we're in love and uh, it's not it's a real deep love we really deeply love each other and we deeply respect each other Josh still carries, like a lot of addicts do, a lot of shame that he has to work through. You know, the failure and the um, pain that of the things you do when you're using and the disappointment that people feel. And, and you know, that's something that he, he'll have to work through for a really long time. And, but all in all, we are, you know, we're very happy. The kids are happy. And the kids, I never lied to my kids. And you know, said everything's fine. And another thing, one of the, I've, I've screwed up so much in my life. It's unbelievable. But the one thing that I have done in my life that I'm really, really proud of is the entire time that Josh would relapse or that he was gone. I never spoke one bad word about Josh to those kids. Not one, because that's the only dad they have. And was he a complete piece of when he was using drugs? The biggest, I mean, the biggest i hated him couldn't stand him but to those little boys that was their dad and that was the only dad they're ever going to have and josh has been so appreciative of me for that because when he does step back in and he's sober and he's able to start feeling again and feeling connected to us again there's not this you know indoctrinated resentment that me as a parent have has thrust upon them instead i said he's sick he has problems and that crazy train took off from the station long before you were ever born. I mean, that was Josh's destiny, sadly. You know, it was in his DNA that he was going to be a drug addict. And um, so, as a family, you know, we we talk about these things a lot. It, my kids know that their dad's a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. And there's no shame in that. It's a part of our story. It's a part of our family story. And um, 
I hope that more people that are going through this, because there's millions of people going through it right now, can know that, you know, there is a way to rebuild your family. It's hard, but you can do it. How did you find the strength to to not tear them down in front of the kids? How did you... Did, could you see ahead? Could you see when he would come back and knowing that they needed to love their dad and accept their dad for everything that he was? What was it that gave you the strength to? It, I knew how much pain they were in. I could see it because when Josh was around before he relapsed, he's a very involved dad. Disney dad. They're like, you know, they're going to the vintage stock and getting all this Super Mario sh- and they're these little plushy toys and they're doing all this stuff together and he was like kids wanted to skateboard josh is at the skateboard shop building custom skateboards and so i knew how sad they were and i couldn't pile on yeah right because i love them you know i, I the in my it wasn't like i made a cognitive decision i'm not going to do this i just looked at them and i thought you know they're hurting as badly as i am and they are so innocent i mean right. josh welch was waving red flags don't date me don't marry me don't breed with me <laughs> and i jumped on top of that flag and made mad passionate love to it so i have culpability here <laughs> okay those kids do not yeah. and so i knew that i just it was something i just knew i couldn't ever pile on. i knew that if i used my words and said well he doesn't love you and he's not here it just seemed so because none of those things was, would have been true. It wouldn't have been true. Right. And it just, it, the whole thing, it's when you see your kids that are sad because their dad's not there and you know, their dad's not there because their dad is, you know, horribly addicted to drugs. It, I don't know. I just, it never occurred to me to pile on because I knew they were hurting enough. I knew I was hurting enough and I knew that was the only dad they had. I think that's absolutely so brave and strong and wonderful of you to do because I'm sure that that has helped them cope with the situation a lot better. And now they can have, yeah, honest conversations. Do you think growing up having them here in Oklahoma City, do you think that helped the situation or hurt the situation? Because I know Oklahoma, I mean, Oklahoma City can be a little bit more conservative, a little mm-hmm. bit more traditional family values. Mm-hmm. Or do you think that them being able to ride their bike to their friend's house, like that, the wonderful things about growing up in Oklahoma City, do you think those things kind of outweighed when you're going through that like a familial civil war if you will geography is not something that enters your head gotcha you are so in survival mode um you know i think that in any community you hear got you'll hear gossip back about you and you'll help people that say stuff about you getting divorced or that josh had done this or that but that's anywhere you know, any people are petty and uh, love, uh, sadly, the the drama of somebody else's pain and they savor in it and chomp in it. And and I just I mean, I just completely became agoraphobic and, and in survival mode as to how I'm going to get through these steps. I was able to call my kids uh, school and talk to their teachers and say, here's what's going on. Please communicate with me. But I always we I always just owned it. I never tried to dress this thing up that it was anything but he is a drug addict. He has relapsed. We are in pain and I'm going to try to get him help. Now, 
I was a nut a lot of the time. I mean, junior detective going through, through trying to figure out. I mean, I, I, mean I, I feel like I need to paint the picture here for people that I wasn't like as calm as I am right now. I mean, I would lose my well, raise, regularly. Raising two small children by yourself would make anybody lose their right. And running a business. And, and, yeah. and then you're just, the you're so with. mad at that person. Yeah. I mean, now I have compassion and all this stuff, but it, it took me a long time to get here. <laughs> no, that it makes complete sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like it's definitely, I'm sure, not easy to talk about. So I really appreciate that. And I know right now, especially with these times, I'm sure a lot of addiction, you hear a lot more addiction is happening. And so, yeah, if anybody listening is struggling, like there is light and we'll, you know, try to figure it out or help as best we can just by telling, you know, these stories. Right. But so when, I mean, you're so unbelievably open and authentic and real. And I think that's probably one of the things I really love about you the most. And when they came to you and wanted to do this television show and you knew that your life was going to be on TV for all to see, did it, did it scare you or were you completely comfortable being open and real with the whole world? It's one thing to do it with your friends and the people you know already, but did you worry when they came to you and said, we want to put well, let's you take on TV? How, I want to, so that? I'm a Bravo fiend. Like I watch every show. I'm obsessed. And I am not. I'm the, yeah. I'm the exact opposite. So, so how I'm, did, yeah. How did it come to fruition? Like, how did the show, did somebody come to you? Yes. Okay. How- so, I received a Facebook message Oh, from somebody when people were still on Facebook. That, yes. That was still a thing. <laughs> when it wasn't Angry Boomers. Right. Um, and um, she was like, hey, I'm casting. I work for a casting agency. I'm casting for a show. Would you hop on it? It wasn't Zoom at the time. It was like video call or whatever. Skype. Skype. That's, That's what, what it, it was. was. It was Skype. Poor Skype. What happened to Skype, Skype in this whole space? It's the same thing. Nobody's whatever that was called. And so it it just it just kind of crescendoed that way. Like you did a video call. The next thing I know, somebody for, that works for Bravo's in Oklahoma City taking me to dinner, and it just boom, boom. It just one chip right after the other. Just the dominoes fell. But back to your question, my biggest concern, yes, was Josh's sobriety. That was my biggest you concern. You didn't want the show to jeopardize that. That was the top right, priority. That people tend to get intoxicated by fame uh, and notoriety and addicts particularly so. And so I was very concerned about that. And we had this fabulous producer. Um, she's just a phenomenal person. And uh, she's a great, great friend of ours right now. And we were really honest. I was really honest with her about how scared I was about that. And I told the Josh and the boys, like, we cannot change who we are. We cannot change. We need to be who we are on TV. You are, you know, this is who we are. We are not married, but we are, I mean, I call Josh my husband, but this is our journey. This is our story. We are, you know, liberal Democrats that live in Oklahoma, unapologetically so. And we're going to be exactly who we are on TV. We're not going to try to please everybody because how boring would that character be, first of all? That's not the character they wanted. (laughs) They, They wanted the authentic, right? Democrat, liberal, modern family girl living in a, in a, you know, in a Republican state. That's, Uh I I mean, I think that was probably the, 
allure at the beginning. And I, I think, think so. they got they ended up getting so much more than that, you know, so yeah. much more depth, I think, than they probably even knew they would get. That was the thing, you know, when I would travel and I'd see on Twitter or Instagram was, God, you really changed my perspective on Oklahoma City. And when the producers were here filming, you remember they'd go and then find people. Yeah, yes. we wanted One to of them ask- was my father. Yes. My crazy <laughs> father in his Uncle Sam costume on 4th of July. That's actually maybe the only episode I've fully seen. Well, the people that yeah. worked on our show were from New York or LA. And they come here and they live here for three or four months while you film. And they live in apartments and they, you know, they live in Oklahoma City. And the producer would say, we can't find conservatives. So, like they'd go to the Walmart parking lot and they would try to interview people to get those hot takes. Like, do you want gun control? Hell no, I don't want gun control. They were looking for that. Wait, and so they realized they everybody to, here is very sweet and like sane kind of. Well, I think that what they realize is that in any urban area, you have these pockets of sophistication, of education, and it's not a one size fits all. I mean, you know, the election that we just had in our county, in Oklahoma County, Trump only beat um biden by three thousand votes that's a purple city that is not a red city red city and so i think that what people found was that these people that live on the coast that consider us flyover states is that there are people here who use the internet go to airports hire chic designers (laughs) yes yes (laughs) that you know that uh, that actually you know have a level of sophistication and culture that might defy what the quintessential stereotype is for our state or for our city but the funny thing about the producers back to that real quick is they had to go out to the suburbs to those walmart parking lots to get the hot takes that they wanted. And and it was this kind of ongoing joke with her. She was like, we can't find anybody that I can't, if it was, we went to the gay pride parade one time and they tried to, you know, link up the locals saying something different than what we were doing. And we weren't any part of that. The, the cast had nothing to do. That was something the producers did, but you know, it was like, what do you think about gay marriage? I don't care. If they want to get married, let them get married. And it was over and over and over and over again. And so they had to, a lot of those, when you get those really hot takes that are, you know, different from what we were doing on the show, they had to go to the suburbs to get that. How did you, how did you, that's kind of one of my questions. How did you feel about that in terms of the way it was portraying Oklahoma City? Were you, were you okay with that? Was that? Yes. And, and this is something I want everybody in Oklahoma City to get in their heads. I think as a city, we get so insecure. And I noticed this when people would come to me after the show was filmed this i was at the state fair and this couple comes up to me and they said oh my god we love your show it was so great but i mean they showed the nicholson's water tower and it looked so trashy and i'm like i literally said that to <laughs> that i was like what do you mean they showed the nicholson's that water is the nicholson's water, water, water tower that's what it looks like why are you trying to dress and up and be something that you're not like? and the people that that is the salt of the earth of america and those people are everywhere I mean, they are everywhere in every city and every town of this country. And this insecurity or this, we have to appear this way. We all know those people. We all know people like that. And you can go to New York and you can go to Florida, which is chock full of people like that. And so I think that there's this insecurity that at least I experienced when people would talk about the show. They'd be like, why did they put those people on? It makes us look so stupid. Or I'm like, well, why do you care? I mean, like, how does that affect 
those, you know, I, I thought they were charming and kind of endearing and kind of the salt of the earth of, of, of any town, of any community. And Catherine's dad. My dad, quirky and fun, just <laughs> completely I, off his rocker. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, re- I thought it was really fun. I thought it was really smart of the producer to do that. I thought it was really, because you, on particularly that network, you see these women that live these outrageous lives and which probably aren't actually that right and then and then our show you kind of got to see just some normalcy real life you know real friends that do stupid with each other and then these people of the town that surround them and i thought they did a good job mixing it up but i think oklahoma city need not be insecure about who we are and the people that we live around because we've made this city and it gets better and better each year and the city city spirit you know to me just seems to be getting better and better it's a heck of a lot better than when we were little Catherine. oh it is light years better totally and it i mean this is when I, I'm a little, I couldn't get out fast enough. When I went to college, I came home at Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and that was it. And having lived back here for 16 years, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I've lived every place I'd want to live. And being here, I feel like I'm part of something as, you know, it's, it's not funny, but the city on the rise. I always, I always right. kind of chuckle when I hear that, but that's what's happening here. And that's, uh, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this show is we wanted to hear people's story about their relationship with Oklahoma City. Right. And I, I think that that you say we have to not be embarrassed by our city. I, I find myself saying, I'll go someplace, let's say the Jones Assembly, and I'll say, I don't even feel like I'm in Oklahoma City. I have to stop saying that because right. I am in Oklahoma City. And it is there are cool things happening here. And that's the city now. Right. It's not the city that it was the city when I was, you know, 14 years old. Right. And I think that we just as people need to get rid of this, like, you know, the appearance thing. Like, who gives a what our water tower looks like? I mean, yeah, I don't care. I never a a it. You know what I mean? And I think it's kind of cute that they, you know, when they film that, that they showed it. That there's like, you know, it, there's Oklahoma City to me. I have the perks of living in a city, but the comfort of everywhere I go, I'm going to see somebody I know. And there's that kind of just comfort. And when you go about town that you see people, you know, and um, I think it's a, it's, it's a wonderful place to live. It's not, a, it's not going to be a place that you want to send people to go on vacation, you know, but it's a great place to live and the people are great. You can live a great life. There's not traffic. Um, you know, it's, it's a really easy life to settle into. I wonder if people say that to you about the homes you design, that they don't feel like they're in Oklahoma City or something like that, because I feel like your design is so cool. And I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I could see how somebody could say that to you as well. Yeah. Sometimes um, I think when the show first started, it would be like, wow, I can't believe that's in, in Oklahoma City. But I think what we're seeing is that every state has these urban areas and the urban thumbprint across the United States of America, people that want to live in cities, you know, are design savvy, read, you know, newspapers, maybe it's online newspapers that really made me sound old. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even read newspapers. I read newspapers online, but I think that, I think that this idea of flyover states and listen, if I, if I was from New York and 
and that's where I lived or I was from LA, I'd fly right over here. I would. I get it. I'm not saying I don't. My love of Oklahoma City is not dependent upon other people approving it. I know that somebody from LA or New York is probably going to come here and say, I am bored to tears. I get it. That's okay. That doesn't affect my love of living here. You know, I don't need that approval. And I think that, what was the name of that book that that guy wrote? Boomtown? Boomtown. Yeah, Boomtown. And the one thing I picked up in that, I read it a couple of years ago, was that, you know, people get really butthurt if there's any critique of Oklahoma City. And, you know, we need to be able to... We need to own it. This is our totally. city. This is the place we love. This totally. is where we've chosen to raise our families and Jennifer, have our businesses. I'm, I'm and- taking that lesson because I do. I get like, if somebody says something bad, I do defend it so much. And I probably should take the criticism. <laughs> <laughs> the city that we lived in growing up is not the city that we live in now. And I don't think I ever could have predicted that we would be where we are now and that the city would be so much more dynamic and robust and have the, I mean, it always sort of had the arts, but now it's, you know, there isn't one museum, there are five museums and, you know, you can go to Broadway shows and you can go to Lyric and you can, you know, go to music events and there's the so basketball many. team, oh, Catherine. The bas- sorry, the basketball team. My sports knowledge is very limited. <laughs> so you guys know. But we have a bas- we have a basketball team we never, you know, we never had before. Right. So with the best I, fans. With the best fans in the NBA, in the country. I never could have predicted any of this. Right. If you had to make a prediction now, where do you think we're gonna be in ten years, in fifteen years? You know, I you know, I remember do you remember when it was two thousand? And we thought, or back in the 80s, remember when we that's watched... When I, that's when I met Jim. Was back like to the, the Future. 2000s. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And it, they talked about 2020. Yes. Yes. You and couldn't even conceive. 2020 of- has become the biggest shit show on earth. Imaginable. Did you see that Mad Max was set in 2021? <laughs> yeah. Please. 2021 yeah. cannot be worse than 2020. So, I mean, I, I think... I mean... I think Oklahoma City will continue. We have a lot, obviously. The one regret of Oklahoma City for me is the the urban sprawl. Yes. It's too spread out. It's too spread out. So hopefully, sorry, hopefully they fill in that sprawl. Um, uh, I think, you know, sadly, we're probably going to get more traffic. Um, I hope that in 10 years, I hope that our citizens can elect officials that care about education. There's a lot of talk, you know, by our governor that we're going to be a top 10 state. Well, that's great. I'm going to be an astronaut. You, I mean, you know, I mean, come on. You have to actually work to be an astronaut. You have, right. to, you have to do what it takes to get there. And there's a lot of things that, you know, we incarcerate more women than any other state. And there's a lot of things than that... almost any other country yes, in the world. There's a lot of things that, um, as Oklahomans, if we could get through the partisan crap and value education and healthcare and things that really make a difference in people's lives where Oklahoma is really lagging. I mean, look at our COVID response. When I think I read this morning that our ICU was completely full. The people that I live around in this city are outraged by this. They share my outrage. And some of them might be Republicans. Some of them might be Democrats, but it's that human thing. So I hope in 10 years, in 15 years, I think our mayor is doing a good job uh, trying to guide new generations that converge together. Um, But I hope that we can make a difference on these things. We're top 10 in a lot of stuff. 
but it's not the good stuff. It's not the stuff you want to be top ten in. Right? Yeah, that's true. That's you know, true. and so I love this place, but we've got to quit electing. It's like every time there's an election, who's the dumbest on the ballot? And that's who Pick wins. I mean, you know, like our senator threw a snowball who doesn't understand the difference between climate and weather. You know, he had a cold weather day in D.C., which is completely different than the overall climate. And it's just that that type of stupidity and the embracing of that type of stupidity is it. That's what bothers me sometimes about living here is, come on, people like this is not helping our state at all. So you just I think you want to hold a mirror to Oklahoma city and you want all of us to hold a mirror to Oklahoma city. It sounds like, well, I want everyone to really start putting your vote where your mouth is. You know, you want, you want something different than, you know, our education system. I think I have a cousin that lives like a noble or somewhere, a first cousin and his kids before COVID, they got cut to a four day work school week four days in the richest country in the world we can't send kids to school five days a week where and it's just where and then then the solution to this is this hyperbola we're going to be a top 10 state well you know great you're not going to do that four days a week (laughs) do you think it's going to take the current Maybe what's the generation below millennials? Zoomers. The Zoomers. Do you think it's going to take the Zoomers growing up to make that change? Do you think it's going to take changing people's minds that are our age? Do you think it's going to take people moving to Oklahoma City who maybe have some more progressive views? Do you think it's all three of those things? What's going to move the needle? Well, the first point, the Zoomers, which are our kids, that is the most diverse generation ever. They, they're growing up around massive amounts of diversity. Like my kids were upset with me that I voted for Joe Biden in the Democratic primary because they wanted me to vote for Bernie Somebody. Sanders. Oh, wow. Like okay. they are woke as f- my kids are. I mean, they are all about all of that. And I love that. I think and it's my great. kids want to talk about it. I didn't talk about politics growing up. Right. With, I mean, we believed what my dad believed. That was how it worked. Right. But now my kids, they actually want to discuss politics. Right. And, you know, they don't discuss it for an hour, but they want to discuss it for 10 minutes and they have questions. And I think that's it's different great. from the way I grew up. So I think that that generation is so much more socially aware. You know, Black Lives Matter is really important to my kids. And um, it, it's it's something that they're embarrassed about that people in this country, you know, are that there's a disparity in the way black people are treated. And why it really embarrasses them. It really is like a fatal, it really hurts them. I mean, it hurts me too. It, I mean, it really does. But I see that generation, you know, and then you, then I go on Facebook and it's like these boomers that you, I'm like, you guys should be happy right now. And they're going down this propaganda Facebook, YouTube. You got to get off Facebook. Messed up Facebook. thing. Yeah. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> no, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Um, but, um, I think in Oklahoma, I think we're seeing, I think with each election cycle, you see things start to shift. And if you look at Oklahoma County, the numbers in Oklahoma County, more people voted against Trump than for him. Granted, 1,700 of those people voted for Kanye West. <laughs> Did they really? Yes. I didn't even see Kanye on the ballot, by he the way, because oh, I yeah. had my whole vote oh, yeah. worked out into exactly for who oh, I was yeah, going he to was vote. There. And I didn't even see his name. Right. <laughs> 
But I think what you're seeing is, you know, there's a shift and I'm not, I, I am a Democrat, but I miss the normal Republicans. Yes. I, I, I never I thought I would there. say. I never I thought I would say that. Right. <laughs> well, it's just becoming very polarizing. And it, it just, it's yeah. I think that, and I don't. I know a lot of millennials. This time in history has been kind of a big glass of water in the face for us because we thought we were so woke, as you say. I mean, I feel so stupid saying woke, but mm. you know, I think we thought, oh yeah, we, you know, we're socially very accepted of a lot of things and all that stuff. And then you realize just over what's happened this last year that this has been a wake up, big wake up call for us who we already thought we were accepting people. Right. So I agree. I think that the city, it is projecting to wake up a lot. Um, but we do need people like you and who have a voice and who can kind of drive that as well. And yeah, I agree with what you're saying for sure. After the show aired, I would be out and about in Oklahoma City and tons of people would come up to me that live in the city and say, oh my God, I believe exactly the way you do politically. And it's kind of like it was this, you weren't allowed to say if you were a Democrat. I'm like, what's the big deal? Half the people in the country are Republicans, the other half are Democrats. Get over it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I have a lot of people and I get a lot of tweets and a lot of uh, Instagram messages and like my inbox that, hey, I totally agree with you. I live in Oklahoma and I'm a Democrat. And so I think you're seeing that in these urban areas, you're seeing people that social issues are really important to them. And some people value people over profit. Some people vote profit over people, but I really value people over profit. And I think that the, our kids generation, Catherine, particularly your kids, um, that is something that they really feel and, and they feel it in their bones. And I think we should all be really proud of that, that, that empathy. That they're, they are so much more comfortable talking in that way than we were talking totally. about people, talking about what's right for the community and how we feel. We didn't, I didn't talk about how I felt growing up. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to do? What were you doing? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. What, you, what you were feeling. Right. Well, you ready for a final question? Okay. Okay. So we started this podcast because we love Oklahoma City and we want to tell interesting stories about Oklahoma City, but we also want to talk about all of our favorite places in Oklahoma City. Okay. So your best friend from out of town comes to visit, brings a weekend visit on you and okay. you go pick them up at the airport. Where do you go first on the way home from the airport? Okay. I am an agoraphobic antisocial person. Yes. So let's uh, <laughs> pretend that you, you, you have to go somewhere. You have to I'll go somewhere. What, what I mean, I obviously like, your house would be the best yeah, place to go, say. but second best place. Um, I would take, we, my family and I, we are a NBA obsessed. So I would take the person, the said out of town best friend directly to a Thunder game. I love that. I love that. That's and incredible. Guess what? We couldn't have said that 15 years ago. That's right. And that, that kind of stuff is so exciting. It really is. Did you see that, that uh, the first female baseball general manager was named? I saw it on the Today Show this morning. The first female coach manager of any male sport in, in professional leagues. was it's amazing. Isn't that awesome? That's I'm, awesome. That's amazing. That is awesome. We'll be that progressive <laughs> in Oklahoma. I would love that. I would definitely love that. Well, thank you, Jennifer. This was incredible. And um, where can people find you? 
Oh, okay. So um, my Instagram, my personal one is Ms. Welch at M-I-Z-Z-W-E-L-C-H. The same on Twitter. And I don't tweet very often, but I started tweeting again uh, during the election, but I'll probably quit soon. Um, and, but I'm on Instagram pretty regularly. And then my business, if you just want to follow the interior design, if you're like, I like that girl's work, but I cannot stand the fact that she's a Democrat, follow <laughs> at Jennifer Welch Designs, Designs with an S. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you you so much. We loved it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your listening to these stories. You can find us on Instagram at ActionCityOKC or for business inquiries, email us at hello at ActionCityOKC.com. Action City is produced by Black & Studios. You can find the studio on Instagram and Facebook at Black & Studios. Creative services provided by Ranger Creative. Music written and performed by Kansas City Bankroll. 